just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. The Rational Boomer Podcast. Hope your day is going well. Now, if you come to this podcast, the Rational Boomer Podcast, expecting to hear what you've heard the previous 218 podcast. Well, I'm sorry, it's going to be different. It's going to be totally different. You know those people who say it's not all about you. Well, today <laughs> it's all about me. And now let me explain why I'm doing this. There's a couple of reasons for it. My wife and I, at the time you hear this podcast are in fact in Phoenix, Arizona. We're down visiting some friends. We're vacationing a little bit. So I'm not really going to have the opportunity to record a podcast because I record podcasts just about every day. And, and, and when I do, I try to keep up to the minute with what's happening in news. Now, this is Wednesday when I'm recording this. And because it's Wednesday, I can't predict what's going to happen in the news. And you know this fucking world. This fucking world's news is going to change. Something's going to happen. If I have to update things, I can do a quick TikTok anywhere pretty much. But to sit down and do the podcast, it's a little hard. Especially when you got people around. They look at you weird. And I, I don't mind that, but my wife would get annoyed by it. So I do everything I can to not avoid or to avoid pissing off my wife. Because, you know, frankly, she scares the shit out of me. No, not really. Well, kind of. Yeah, definitely scares me. <laughs> Anyhow, this particular podcast is going to be totally different than anything you've heard. And I've been asked to do this by a number of people. So I thought, well, I can record this in advance because these are all stories I've had in my head that I've told a billion times. So I should be able to whip this out. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. So we'll see if that is true. But I've had kind of a some might say a checkered past, but I'd like to say it's more of a diverse past. I've never been really in trouble or in drugs or anything like that, so I don't have anything really bad back there. Now, there was some shit in the 70s I, I don't want to talk about, but during the 80s, when I was out of high school, I'd spent a little time in college, I got into a business that uh, was pretty intriguing. Not hugely profitable, but intriguing. I'd spent a lot of time in radio in the 70s and in the early, early 80s. Uh, and I was about 21 years old, and I thought, well, I know pretty much everything there is about radio by then, which, of course, wasn't true. But I'd specialized in production. That means putting together, producing radio commercials and that sort of thing. So I thought, hey, I got an idea. I'm going to start a business. I had a friend who was a more established radio guy. He was actually very good, and he was a good friend of mine, but he was way older. He was like fucking 30, so he knew everything, too. And we decided to start this company, and the company would basically be a recording studio, but it was also a production studio in the sense that we were going to create, uh, produce, and sell syndicated radio programs. And that's what we did. We produced a number of syndicated programs. And it's weird. The technology back then was such where you couldn't just have somebody download it because it was the fucking early 80s, 81, 82. So what you do is you'd produce these radio shows and then you would physically send them out in the mail or UPS to the radio station on tapes that they would play. It was a tough business because there was a lot of expense in the business. You couldn't get a lot of money for the radios because radio stations are cheap as fuck. So that wasn't going so well. I mean, we were doing okay. We were airing shows on a number of stations from New York to San Francisco. But it still wasn't enough money to sustain itself. So my father uh, saw this. And my father at the time, I've told you about him before, he's a complete asshole. He's basically a mini Donald Trump, but he had a fair amount of money and he wanted to invest money in something. And he came to me and he said, can I invest in your studio? Now I'm thinking to myself as a 21 or 22 year old thinking, wow, fucking free money. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> so I took him up on it. In retrospect, that was a bad idea, but I'm fucking 21, 22. 
So I take some of his money. But then as it's going along, he keeps putting more money into it, but not in terms of cash. He got a key to my office, which is in downtown Minneapolis in a bank building, Kitty Corner from First Avenue. And he's coming down. Um, <laughs> my, my mom and he weren't really talking that much. They were technically living together. They were technically married, but, you know. That wasn't really a very close relationship at this point. But he'd use my office as a place to decompress, you know, after hours when I wasn't there. He put in a refrigerator, stocked it with beer and alcohol all the time, which wasn't optimal for a bunch of 22-year-olds who were coming to work every day. It's hard to resist this alcohol, expensive alcohol, sitting there. And that was ended up being a problem for me, but that's really not part of the story. But... He, he he would buy, I, I came in one time and there was a brand new serograph uh, by Leroy Neiman. It was a very expensive painting. I, I don't know why he put it there. There were lamps, there were couches, there were leather chairs. I was kind of a small time recording studio, but I looked like the shit because I had everything in there. And I was wondering, why does he keep putting money into this fucking thing? I couldn't understand it. And then one day, I'm downtown Minneapolis out with my girlfriend at the time, who was now my wife. And uh, I'm doing a radio show the next morning, and I remembered I had a tape in my, in my uh, office. So I decided to go get that tape, bring it home with me so I could just go right to the other radio station where I was doing the show. No biggie. I thought I'd bring my girlfriend up there and press her with the studio. So we go in. It's like 9 o'clock at night. We had been out to dinner, went to a movie or whatever we did. And I go up to my office. I unlock the door, walk in, and immediately I notice something's fucked up here. <laughs> the lights are down low. I didn't even know we had a rheostat on this motherfucker. There's some music playing in the background. Now, you have to understand how this looks. You come in, you have the lobby, and you have my office. And then there's a sound booth and you go behind and that's the studio. So I couldn't see what was going on way back. <laughs> so anyway, I get in there and go, somebody's fucking here. So as I'm going to my office, my dad comes out from around the corner of the studio. He's got his T-shirt on. He looks a bit disheveled. And he says, hey, what's up? <laughs> I go, I'm just getting a fucking tape. I got to go to a radio show tomorrow. He goes, oh, I can get it for you. You don't want to go back there. I go, I guess I don't. And I said, don't worry about it. It's on my desk. I'll just go around the corner here. I don't have to go back there. I'll grab my tape and I'll get the fuck out of there. And he says, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm just hanging out relaxing. Yeah, I can see that, Dad. You're fucking relaxing. I don't know who you're relaxing with, but at this point, I don't really give a fuck. All the problems with my mom and dad already have been done and gone. They just happen to be officially married, but not in realistic terms. So when I walked in the room, I noticed there was a woman's coat and a woman's dress sitting on one of the lobby chairs. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was kind of taken aback by this whole scene. She couldn't understand it. She's a suburban girl. She doesn't get this whole situation. <laughs> and and uh, so the dress is there and, and, and the woman's coat is there. And we walk out of my office. I lock the door and I'm fucking pissed because he's, he's, <laughs> he's taken over my office at night as his own little private sex suite. And we're going to have to have a talk about that. But as I'm walking out, my, my girlfriend, my wife now, looks at me kind of white and, and not knowing what to say. And uh, she looks at me and she goes, what, what was going on there? And I said, honey, what the fuck do you think was going on there? And she looks at me with all the seriousness in her face and she goes, is, is your dad a transvestite? <laughs> Yeah, those women's clothes were just stuff my dad was trying on. Right at that moment, I said, I'm marrying this girl. She's way too fucking innocent. I got to take her home. I got to marry this girl. And of course, I did. So anyway, I have this studio where we're producing 
syndicated shows, and it's not going too well. My partner and I aren't getting along very well. My partner ends up going by the wayside. He leaves under my insistence. So now it's just me running this studio. My father's helping out with some money, but he doesn't really know anything about the business, so he's pretty much leaving me alone, which was the wise thing to do. And I decided I need to expand our services. I couldn't continue doing what I was doing because I've lost part of my my uh, team that was producing the products, coming up with the content. So I decided to expand a little bit into doing radio commercials and TV commercials and slideshows and that sort of thing. And that worked out pretty well. That worked out pretty well. I started getting some business, but it was still really hard. You know, to have these people come in, there's a lot of competition. Being the cheapest guy wasn't necessarily the best guy because people wanted the best shit for their customers to put out there. So I did a number of commercials, some national, some local, and it was going okay. But it wasn't going great. I wasn't getting rich. I'm 22 years old. I'm thinking I'm going to be rich and famous by the time I'm 25. And at this rate, (laughs) that wasn't going to work. So one day I'm sitting in my office, kind of frustrated, kind of broke. And this kid comes in and says, hey, man, do you do music? Now, being a young, dumb guy who has no musical ability, never recorded music, I said, fuck yeah, we do music. We do music all day. We'd be happy to do some work for you. Now, you have to understand, Minneapolis at the time had become kind of a mecca for music. In the early 80s, we've got Prince coming out, The Time, Andre Simone, Sheila E., Soul Asylum, Maserati. We had all kinds, or the replacements, we had all kinds of music going on here, and people were getting signed out of Minneapolis. I knew nothing about the music business, so I didn't really pay that much attention. But the moment I said to this person, yeah, we do music, I fucking changed everything. You know, Purple Rain comes out, all this stuff happens. Now, everybody around the country who's desperate to be in music decides to come to Minneapolis to be discovered, which really wasn't the best idea, but that's all they had. So they came to Minneapolis. They're trying to meet Prince's manager. They're trying to get into First Avenue. They're trying to do all kinds of stuff. Now, when I first got in the music business, I was dealing with some low-level people who weren't really fucking that talented, and that was going nowhere. They asked me if I could help them get a record deal. I said, fucking sure. But I had no idea what it took to get a record deal. I didn't even know what a fucking record deal was, but I'm trying to make a buck. Now, the idea of getting in the music business, just recording shit for for musicians who aren't established, that was a bad idea. Because you see, musicians don't fucking have money. And if they don't have money, they can't pay you. They'll say something like, well, I tell you what, if you record this, when I get to be famous, I'll give you all kinds of money. <laughs> First of all, they're not going to get famous. And if by chance they do get famous, they're still not going to give you money. So don't buy into that bullshit. Just don't buy into it. But I was young and I was stupid. One day I'm sitting there and because I'm doing the music, this uh, older black woman, a white Jewish guy and this cute little black girl come into my office. They want me to help them record this girl and get her a record deal. I'm thinking, yeah, I can fucking do that, but I can. But I find out this girl's kind of connected in the music world in Minneapolis. She actually had been signed to a record contract that she'd gotten through Andre Simone. She she had been in a group called The Girls. Now, this girl's really cute and sings like fucking Aretha Franklin, I think. Here's my ticket. I got somebody who's really talented, somebody who's had kind of a track record, albeit through Andre Simone. Yeah, I'll help this girl. (laughs) Had no idea what the fuck I was getting into. So anyway, we signed some contract. I don't even know what the fuck it was. Um, And she wants to form a band. I'm listening to this girl sing, and she is fucking amazing. To this day, I know her. She's in her 50s. She's still a fucking amazing singer. She works for a bank system now or whatever. But she was really good. So we start working with her, and she has some connections in the business. 
And we get to meet a lot of people while I'm in the music business that uh, are legit. I mean, really legit people. She puts together this band, and this band is pretty substantial. Now, she's saying on backup a number of times and uh, big, big name people. So she's really good. She puts together this band. Now, remember, we got a bunch of 20-something fucking musicians, black musicians from Minnesota, who are all there and all caught up in this whole Prince thing, and everybody thinks they're a fucking genius. Turns out the people in her band were probably more talented uh, than I thought, uh, because there's one kid who was a keyboard player that I always thought was just an arrogant fuck. Well, he went on to work with somebody I've never heard of, but ended up winning a Grammy. Now he's a big-time producer in Los Angeles. There's another kid who was the drummer who was the boyfriend of the girl singing. Good kid. Smart kid. Was a talented kid. And I like him. I still talk to him from time to time. Well, he ended up being Prince's best friend. He was Prince's best man at his wedding. He played drums for Prince for a time. He's the guy that carried Prince off the plane when he was unconscious just a short time before he died. He was the guy that found Prince when he died. Now, this kid's taken a lot of heat because people are trying to blame him for Prince's death because he was supposed to have gotten him drugs and all that stuff. That's bullshit. Prince did what the fuck he wanted to do. He didn't listen to anybody else. It was a mistake by Prince, and unfortunately, that's how it ended up. So anyway, we're working with this group, okay? And it's going pretty well. They're going to open for the Daz Band uh, at at First Avenue. So we get a chance. The Daz Band comes to my fucking office. I'm going, cool. Daz Band. And she opens for the Daz Band, does really well. We're getting some interest from some people as far as record deals, but I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. So while that's going along, another kid walks in my office. His name is Chaz. And he says to me, you can see he's a, he's kind of a, a bullshit artist. But he says to me, you know, I'm Prince's cousin. Now, during this era... Everybody was fucking Prince's cousin. Everybody was more talented than Prince. So I said, come on in. Tell me what you got. I didn't give this guy much credit at first until he pulled out this satchel. And in that satchel was a bunch of cassettes, recordings of the band Grand Central, which was Prince's first band. And he was the drummer in the band for a time until he got fired. And yes, he was Prince's cousin. But I could tell right away he's a scammer. But he says something to me that's kind of interesting. He says, I got this guy in Los Angeles. He wrote a book about Prince, and I helped him out. He said, if I ever want to get a record deal, put some stuff together, get some management, and call me. I said, so what's that mean to me? He said, I'm going to put together a tape in your studio for free, of course. And then you're going to deal with a guy in Los Angeles, and, and, and we're going to get a record deal. And I thought, well, this is all bullshit, and this guy in Los Angeles is probably bullshit. But I call the guy. Fucking hell of a guy. Well-connected. He's a writer and a publisher of magazines in Los Angeles. I get to like this guy because he's pretty solid. fact is, you know, all these years ago, 40 years ago, I still talked to him. He's still a good guy. He's not in the music business anymore, just like me, because he had some of the similar situations that I have that told him, get the fuck out of that business. So we got talking, and he told me, yeah, if you guys can come up with something, if you guys can come up with something, I'll help you get a deal. I was still a little skeptical about this, but I said, what the fuck? So the kid goes in the studio. The kid goes in the studio, and he's recording some stuff. He comes up with some shitty stuff, but he has one song that's pretty good. So I send it to our contact in Los Angeles. He goes, dude, that may be a fucking hit. I go, are you serious? He says, yeah, it's a hit. I'm going to set up an appointment with a record executive, and uh, you can pitch him on this thing. I said, cool. You know, I'm a big, dumb white guy. My brother's helping me. He's a big, dumb white guy, and we're going to try to pitch black music to a black executive at a black record company. Seems like that's going to work, right? So we go to Los Angeles and we meet with this guy. Now, this guy, pretty arrogant. I understand he's connected to the mafia somehow, even though he's a person of color. His dad's pretty powerful. 
Now, this guy went on to be pretty powerful, too. He was the president of Interscope Records. And I think at this point, he's one of the two guys that are handling the Michael Jackson publishing company, which is fucking sizable. Anyway, we go sit down with him, and he's an arrogant fuck, and we're going through song after song after song. And he says, this is bullshit. This is esoteric. This is fucking crap. This is ridiculous. He made Simon Cowell look like a nice fucking guy. But then he comes to the song that we all agree is pretty good. He goes, that's that's a fucking hit, dude. I said, okay, are we getting a record deal? He says, yeah, but not what you think. What he's going to give us is something called a 12-inch deal. And this 12-inch deal is a single, but it's on a 12-inch record. This was real popular in the 80s. And we're going to get that deal. They're going to print that record, and I will come back a conquering hero because nobody expected I would get a fucking record deal. Everybody was pretty much laughing at me. The little girl was mad that I was focusing on this other kid and getting the deal. And she said, you just go out there, get your ass kicked, and come back home. Well, it turns out we come back with a 12-inch record deal from this big record company and this big executive. And everybody knows about it before we even get there. So we do come back as conquering heroes. And then the perception of my brother and I and our efforts in the music business change. All of a sudden, we're geniuses. We're connected. We know how to get somebody a fucking deal, which wasn't true. But that's how everybody perceived it. And everybody in the business, all the musicians that have come to Minneapolis, see us as their one ticket in. We're approachable because we're not as big time as some of the other people in town. And we have some proven success. Okay, that goes well. But then after a period of time, I'm not seeing the contract coming in the mail. And then I get a call from the record executive and says to me, "Uh, Mike, we got a fucking problem. I go, problem? What's the problem? (laughs) He says, you know that song we're going to put on a 12-inch? I said, yeah. He said, well, your boy stole that from fucking Prince, (laughs) which is conceivable because he has all these all these tapes of Grand Central days. And it turns out one of the reasons he got kicked out of Grand Central is because uh, there was talk after Prince got signed that he helped some folks steal Prince's equipment. I don't know if that's true, but everybody I've talked to seems to think it is. So I'm upset. I call this kid into my office and I tear him a fucking new asshole. We had normal people that were our neighbors in that office, and people go, what the fuck happened? Did you kill somebody in there? Well, the kid takes off. He takes about three of my my guitars and some other equipment. Never see the fucking kid again. He just disappears. And then, about a week and a half later, I get a call from this record executive. And this record executive says, what's up, man? I go, what do you mean, what's up? He goes, are we going to do this deal, or what the fuck? I said, you just told me we weren't going to do the deal because my guy fucking stole a song from Prince. He goes, oh, man, you got to listen to me, man. He says, I don't care if he stole the record. We'll still put that fucker out. You just got to let us in on the scam. I said, well, I'd love to let you in on the scam, but I don't know what the scam was. I didn't know he was going to steal a song from Prince. <laughs> well, As I said, I never saw the kid again, so we never did that deal. That stolen song from Prince never came out. And I got to tell you, it was good. It was really kind of poppy, but it never came out. So then that record executive got on the phone with my friend in Los Angeles. We sat down and talked, and he said to me, look, man, Mike, you got fooled. He said to my friend, you got fooled, too. And then the guy said, let's be perfectly honest. I got fucking fooled as well. The best thing we can do, this is what the executive says, we'll just let that go to forget about it. And maybe we can come together and work on something else and actually make money and have some success from it. Now, I wasn't expecting that kind of response from this guy. I expected him to hate my fucking guts that my whole career in the music business would be over. (laughs) That wasn't the case, man. That wasn't the case. In fact, 
Probably six months later, I had another situation. Called my friend in California. He was buying into it. We didn't go back to that record executive, but we had a bunch of record executives interested in it. I'll tell you that story when we come back. All right, I just want to say as we come back, my son was always getting on me. When I record the podcast, I record it on a small recording unit, and then I send it to my computer. He said, Dad, you dumb fuck. Why don't you just put the microphone in the computer and just record on the computer? That would save you a step. And I said, it doesn't sound the same. It's not right. I'm not going to do that. He said, just try it once for fucking me. I said, all right. And that's what I'm doing here. And you'll notice if you listen to the podcast, it's clear. You can understand it. It's fine. But it's got this boomy effect in it, like I'm in a fucking hippodrome someplace. Yeah, we won't be doing that again. So this will be the only podcast that you hear that sounds like this. And I need to have a little talk with my son. I spent years and years as an audio recording engineer. I think I know some shit. (laughs) He's 28, never done anything. He doesn't know jack shit. So I'm going to straighten his situation out. Anyway, let's continue the story. So I'm a young man. I've got a studio in downtown Minneapolis, Kitty Corner from First Avenue. Purple rain starting to take effect. And they, they, they shoot this almost entire movie outside my building. You got all the film crews and prints and the time, and they're all doing whatever they're fucking doing outside the building. A lot of the people that were extras in it were not actors, and I knew a lot of them. Like the girl. Remember the girl that they picked up and they threw in a dumpster, Jerome did, in an alley? That alley was a half a block away from my place. I knew the girl. Nice girl. I don't know why she allowed them to do that. But anyway... I'm watching all of this, and I'm trying to go along to get along, and every fucking musician in the world wants to ring my doorbell. Yeah, see, I had a regular studio and a regular office building, but it got so bad with people coming to my door, I had to put security on the fucking thing, because they'd just walk in off the street, tell us that they're badder than Prince, but they weren't good. They weren't shit. It got to the point, there was a place... A couple blocks down from our office, and my brother and I and maybe somebody else would be walking down to have lunch at a local restaurant, and they couldn't get in my building, so we'd be walking down the street, and all of a sudden we'd hear some noise, and there's a guy behind us with a fucking boombox over his head playing his music, hoping we'll hear it and tell him, yeah, we'll work with him. Now, that was pretty lofty shit for a bunch of guys who didn't know what the fuck they were doing who had a failed record deal, but that's how it was. We had people coming in and out. We had people that wanted to uh, work with us or be artists for us. And we really weren't in a position to really be that magical. Until one day, had another kid come in the office. He's a young kid. And he's very quiet, kind of a big, bulky kid. He's kind of surly. And I'm going, what the fuck are you surly about? You're coming to me, bitch. <laughs> So I sit down and talk to this kid, and I find out who he is. Now, this kid played in the band The Time. He was the bass player in The Time in the movie Purple Rain. He replaced Terry Terry Lewis when he was fired by Prince along with Jimmy Jam. You remember that. And he was a bass player, and he was in the movie The the, uh, Purple Rain. He was in the band The Time. And then after Purple Rain, that time really never played a lot after that. So he ended up in another band with another former time member called Jesse Johnson. It was the Jesse Johnson Review. They had some hits. So he'd been playing there. But now he'd gotten to the point where he wanted to go out on his own. Well, who the fuck doesn't? So he comes to me. And I'm thinking it's going to be the same old shit that I see every day. Some kid thinks he's talented and he's not. But hold the brakes a minute. Because this fucking kid is hugely talented. He's like Prince in the in the sense he can go in a studio, play virtually any instrument, play it really well. He could sing the lead. He could sing the backups. He could do what Prince did. You know, maybe not as great as Prince because Prince was a freak of nature, but this kid was really, really good. And at this point, they were buying anything that comes out of Minneapolis. So anyway, I get some courage up. I call our friend that I got through my previous failure. And I said, look, man, I got a kid that's really talented. He's got a pedigree, and this fucking kid is amazing. Listen to his tape. 
So I sent him the tape because <laughs> there were no downloads back then. And he calls me back. He goes, Mike, this fucking kid is talented. We can get him signed. I said, are you sure? He says, dude, this fucker's getting signed. I said, okay. So I connect up with this kid. We signed some kind of contract. It's bullshit that we wrote on our own, I think. And we send the music out. And this guy does what he does. He gets out to all his contacts. He starts playing the music. And we get some interest. <laughs> and so... All of a sudden, I get a call from my guy and says, look, man, we, uh, we, we can get him hooked up. You need to come to L.A., and we're going to put you in front of some people. I said, cool. So we went out to L.A. trying to sell this guy as an artist with his music and his talents and all that stuff, and it was kind of an interesting trip. <laughs> First of all, now, he's a black kid from North Minneapolis. He's never had any money. He's never had anything really fucking going on. So we get to Los Angeles, never been there before. We rent a car and we're driving and uh, we, we apparently take the wrong turn off. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden I see the, the kid in the back seat starts getting nervous. He goes, oh no, oh fuck, oh fuck. I go, what's the problem, dude? He goes, there's too many black people around. I go, what do you mean? He says, I've been to Los Angeles. This is not the right area. Too many black people around. I go, where where the fuck are we? He says, it looks like we're in Compton. I don't know Compton from fucking East L.A. or West L.A. or whatever. He goes, you don't want to be in fucking Compton in the 80s. <laughs> I said, so we'll get back on the freeway and go. I said, besides, what are you fucking worried about? You're black. He goes, they're going to kill you because you're white. They're going to kill me because I'm with the fucking white guys. Get the fuck out of there. So we do. There was no problem. There was no big deal. So we meet up with our guy, have dinner, mess around a little bit, decide who we're going to talk to. And he's got a bunch of meetings set up with big-time executives at big-time record companies. I mean, we were in Virgin for a time. And when we were in Virgin, uh, we saw a lot of stars in that fucking place, including the clown that owned it, David Geffen. He peeked his head in the door and said, hey, what's up? I go, Dave, what's up? <laughs> he didn't know me from fucking Adam. But we go into this other, other record company, and we're sitting down with a record executive who's kind of famous. Everybody knows who he is. He's a black uh, record executive. And we sit down. And I look at him. I say, look, man, can I use the bathroom before we get started? He said, sure. It's right down the hall. I said, okay. By the time I get back, like five minutes max, my guy, my artist is standing up and he's angry and he's looking at the record executive. He says, Mike, let's get the fuck out of here. I go, what? What, what, what fucking happened here? He goes, you know what that motherfucker did? <laughs> I said, dude, I've been gone five minutes. What could he have done? He says, look, this dude... This dude wants me to fire you and hire some black manager that he controls to take over my business. <laughs> and I look at the guy and go, well, that's pretty fucked up. He goes, well, no, you know, it's a black industry. You're a white guy. You should maybe have a black manager. He'll probably do better. That would be the best idea. Now, this is something record companies do all the time, not just with black and white people. It doesn't make a difference. They want to get you under control of somebody that they control so they can fucking use you up and throw you away. So my guy knew this, but he didn't like the idea that uh, this guy wanted to hook him up with a black manager. Now, keep in mind, this kid is black. And the guy said, I just thought it'd be better if you had a black manager. And the kid looks at him and he goes, are you fucking crazy? He says, I'm not going to let some N-word fucking handle my money. I go, whoa, this went the wrong way quick. I got a black artist who's going all fucking racist on us. So needless to say, we walked the fuck out of there. Didn't get a deal. And I thought, oh, my God, we're fucked again because that'll get around all the record companies and we'll never get signed. And as it turns out, we didn't get an artist deal. But it wasn't because of that situation. It was because at that time, everybody was androgynous, skinny, little, like Prince and all these other folks. And 
this guy was big and bulky, and he looked like a bouncer, and he was kind of surly. He wasn't sweet and innocent. He wasn't fun and sexy. He was just a big dude with a lot of talent. So everywhere we went, there was really nobody interested because the optics weren't right. Okay. So we're getting frustrated. We're mad as fuck. So we're willing to get anything. Now, at one point, this artist comes up with a pretty good song. And our connection hooks us up with somebody in Tommy Boy Records. Her name was Monica Lynch. You probably heard of her if you know anything about rap stuff. And she wanted the song for her group called the Force MDs. Now, the Force MDs had had a big hit with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, so we thought this was an opportunity. And, and so we said, sure, we'll, we'll sell the song. And they said, uh, but he wants to produce it. She goes, oh, fuck now. He's not producing it. He ain't fucking Prince. He ain't producing it. He says, if you can come up with a producer, then you can do it that way. Now, I don't know shit about this business, but I know one producer. <laughs> His name is Monty Moyer. He was the original keyboard player for the time. He lived across the street from me when I was growing up. He's a friend of mine. He's now work- He was working for Jam and Lewis with Flight Time Productions. He's not anymore. He worked on Janet Jackson's album, Control. He wrote a couple songs on that album. So Monica says, fuck yeah, hire him. So I call Monty and I say, well, let's do that. So Monty and uh, the Force MDs and my guy go to a studio in Minneapolis, and they're recording this thing. And it's a pain in the ass because everybody's arguing, and I'm not there. I'm letting Monty handle it because he's the fucking producer. But all the time they're here, we're here, there's another production going on across the hallway. And the guy producing it is a gentleman by the name of Oliver Lieber who's kind of about the same level of my guy, talented, has a future, has some prospects, and he's working with this little girl in that that room. And every time he comes out, he goes, Jesus fucking Christ, this girl cannot sing. I have to start and stop the tapes. There, there, there was none of the technology that automatically puts you in tune, auto-tune. They didn't have that then. So, He was having a hell of a time, but he was producing this record, and we'd go back and forth. I'd see the little girl from time to time, fucking adorable, cute as can be, but she couldn't sing. So now while that's going on, while that's going on, there is a guy who is running Michael Jackson's publishing company. Now, this is the publishing company that Michael Jackson bought when he bought all the Beatles songs. It was called ATV at the time. Now... What they were trying to do is sign this guy that was across the hall from us, Oliver Lieber, to a publishing deal. And what that means is you write songs and you submit them and they try to sell them to other artists. Now, most of those deals aren't real big, as I found out later, but they were trying to sign him. Now, he was playing hardball. He wanted X amount of money. They thought it was ridiculous and they didn't sign him. (laughs) And they fucked up. Because when that album was done and it was put out, it was Paula Abdul's first album, sold like fucking 10 million records. That publishing company and that guy fucked up because they were pinching pennies and they lost. And he looked stupid. And the publishing company looked stupid. So speed ahead a couple of weeks, maybe a month or so. And I don't know that happened. I have no idea who those people are, the publishing company or anything. I don't know anything about that. But that same guy comes to me and now wants to sign my guy because they're this this other guy and my guy are pretty comparable as far as talents. And he comes to me and he says, I want to sign your guy. That's a weird guy. He's an Asian guy who really had no experience in the record business. He had a very bad stutter, but he was cocky as fuck. Michael Jackson owned this publishing company, so apparently he liked him for some reason and just made him president of the company. Now, he was competent. He knew what the fuck he was doing when it came to music, and he came to me and he said, I'd like to sign your guy to a publishing deal. I said, cool, let's talk. He said, how much do you want? I said, well, now, keep in mind, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about or what I'm doing. He says, uh, I'll give you, I I said, what I want is $100,000 a year for three years. He laughs at me. He goes, I bet you do. 
but that's fucking ridiculous. I had no idea at the time somebody unknown publishing deal might be twenty or thirty thousand dollars. But remember, he just got burned big time with the other guy in Paula Abdul's record, so he's a little nervous. Again, I don't know any of this. I'm asking for a hundred thousand dollars because I'm stupid. And he goes back and he's fretting for a little bit. And he comes back to me and he says, look, man, I am not going to give you $100,000. I said, cool, we'll just go on. We've been turned down by the best of them. And he says, no, I'm going to offer you a deal and you're going to fucking take it. I said, well, we'll see. He said, here's what I'm going to do. The first year, I'm going to give you $80,000, which is way above what the average should be. He says, I'm going to give you $500 per song he turns in over and above that. And he's got to turn in 20 songs. He's thinking that might be the thing that scares us. Well, my guy can write 20 fucking songs in a week. So that's not a problem. So when you think about that, he's given us $80,000 plus $500 a song for 20 songs. That's $90,000. That's close enough for me. Next year, he's going to give us $90,000 and 20 songs at 500 bucks a piece. Now we're at 100 grand. Cool. And the third year, he's only going to give us 105,000 plus 500 a song, 20 songs. So we're now at 115. <laughs> it all works out to be 100 grand anyway, a year averaged out. So anyway, now I got to negotiate this deal. And I, you know, I'm what? 26 years old. I'm smart as fuck. I've been in the music business for about three years. I'm going to negotiate with this guy. And I kind of get basically what we want, but I know, you know, I'm going to get stepped on. I'm going to get eaten up in this motherfucker. <clears throat> so I get through a friend of mine, a contact of a lawyer from Madison Avenue in New York, a big time, big time lawyer. And I call him up. And I say, look, man, I got this deal that's pretty much done, but I need somebody to go through it and make it perfect, make it work. He says, I can handle that. I said, now, how much is this going to cost? Because my guy is real conscious about his fucking money now, that it's his fucking money. Um, he says, well, it's going to cost somewhere between five and $9,000. Depends on what I need to do. I said, okay, cool. I know what lawyers want to do and what, how they make money. So, okay. So we get into it. He gets the contract. I tell him the contract ahead of time. And he says, there's no way you got that contract. That's fucking crazy. Nobody's ever got that kind of contract before. I said, no, that's the deal. He gets the contract. He calls me up. He goes, Mike, that is the fucking deal. I said, I know. I told you. He said, this is unheard of. This is unprecedented. This is the biggest deal I've ever seen for somebody that's unknown. I said, well, cool, then we're doing good. Tune it up, and let's get this fucker done. So he does. Takes about a week, max. Sends it off. My guy gets a check for, what, like 50 grand right off the bat? My, my buddy from the north side of Minneapolis, this young black kid, is fucking unbelievably happy because he's had more money than he's ever seen in his life, and there's more coming. And so I get a bill from the lawyer, and he said, and it says it's nine thousand dollars. Well, my guy knew the, the the parameters were five to nine. He says, "There's no way I'm paying that fucker nine thousand dollars." He only worked on it a week. I said, "All right, I'm going to represent my guy." I called the lawyer, and I said, "Look, man, nine thousand ain't going to cut it." He goes, "You're going to have to pay the nine thousand. I'm a fucking New York lawyer, and you're going to do what you got to do." I said, "No, nah, I'm not going to do that." My guy doesn't want to pay it, which you said doesn't fit. So, yeah, we're not going to fucking do that. He said, I'll make sure you never work in this business again. <laughs> so now when my guy signed this big production or publishing deal, it caused a bit of stir in Minneapolis and in Los Angeles for that matter. So I'm trying to think of what I got to do. I got a New York lawyer on one side. I got my kid from North Minneapolis, who I really represent, who's it's a little fucking nuts when he's mad. So I decide, what do I got to do? How do I get this worked out? So I played on the lawyer's greed. And I went to him. I said, look, here's the deal. We're going to pay you the $9,000. He goes, good. I'm glad you saw the way it should be. And I said, however, there's something you should know. We got a couple people interested in artist deals for my guy to be an artist, which is typically worth a lot more money than publishing deals. He says, cool, 
give me that stuff and we'll work on that. We'll get it wrapped up and your guy will be rich, you'll be rich, and I'll be making a lot of money. Everything will be cool. I said, whoa, hold on a minute. Here's the deal. I'm sending you the $9,000 for the publishing deal, but as soon as you get that $9,000, you're fired. He goes, what? I said, you're fired. You're obviously too expensive. We can't fucking afford you, so we're fired. He says, what are you going to do with the artist deals? I go, I'll get another fucking lawyer that doesn't charge me outrageous fucking rates. He said, you can't do that. I said, I'm fucking doing it right now. And he says, well, how about $8,000? I said, how about five? He said, how about $7,000? I said, how about five? <laughs> he says, how about $6,000? I said, last offer, 5500 all right, motherfucker, I'll take that. Give me the other shit, too. So about three months goes by, and he says, what's the deal with the uh, artist artist offers, the artist deals? I go, oh, fuck, man, that wasn't real. I made that shit up. And he says, what? You lied to me? He says, I cannot believe you fucking lied to me. I said, we got some stuff in the offing, but we didn't really have any artist deals sitting there. He goes, you lied to me. You played me. I said, let me get this straight. You're a New York lawyer who works in the music business, and you're mad that I fucking played you. Playing people is your fucking business. The only thing you're mad is that I beat you at it. And he was pissed off, and uh, he was angry. (laughs) So I fucking fired him. Got another lawyer. And it went on like that. So the point of it is, there's a lot of fucked up shit on it. And you got to be able to think on your feet in this stuff. And I quickly found out that as much money as we were bringing in, I wasn't really making a lot of money. We had to reinvest it in the production and all this stuff. And my buddy, my guy, didn't make a lot of money on the publishing deal. We had one instance that could have made my guy rich, but the publishing company, Michael Jackson Company, fucked up. They came to us, they said, somebody wants one of your songs and we're going to sell it to one of them. The first one is kind of a utilitarian, um, old school type of artist. He's never really made it, but he's on the verge. We want him to do it. But there's another young act that we never heard of that wants to do it too. They said, what do you think? And everybody on my side, my brother, myself, and and my guys said, give it to the young kids. Give it to the young kids. (laughs) And he said, nah, we don't want to do that. I go, why the fuck did you ask us that? And he says, uh, well, we think it's a safer bet with the uh, older, more established act, even though he's not a big star. So we were forced into that situation, and here's how it went. They gave it to that um, utility kind of guy, the guy that's never made it as a star, And the problem is his deal and that song got put on the shelf and nothing else came of it. That song was never released. We never made any money off of it because the publishing company made the wrong choice. You probably saved yourself. Yeah, but what happened to that young fucking group? Well, that young group was was called Color Me Bad, Color Me Bad. And that their first album sold like five, six million records. Had my guy's song just been on the record, not even released as a single, he would have been a millionaire. But again, they fucked up. When it was all said and done, my guy collected a lot of money. He put in a lot of songs and uh, he never got rich off of it. I certainly never got rich off of it. About that time, I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, I've taken this to the mountain and I still didn't make money. Maybe I better rethink my position in the music business, because if I can win and still not make money, I need to do something else. Well, at that point, I got a wife, I got a house, I got a young kid, and I'm thinking, Mike, you got to do a real fucking job. You got to do something. This is fun. This is exciting. This gives you a lot of stories, but you ain't making money. So I kind of ease my way out of it. I sold the recording studio. My brother still hung with that artist working on some other deals and stuff. And they did some good stuff. They went out to the Poconos and recorded some things with Force MDs that turned out okay. He was in a position where he didn't need the money. He wasn't married, didn't have kids. And uh, he had a little extra money so he could hang with it for a while. But I got the fuck out of it. I went in and did something in the traditional radio business so I could earn a living, feed my kids, feed my wife and feed me. And in the end, it all worked out. Nobody on my side of things, including my brother, made a lot of money. 
in the music business. But we had a lot of fucking experiences. And those experiences could take up 10 podcasts. There's a lot of fucking things that happen. Crazy, ridiculous bullshit that happened. But in doing this podcast, now I have to do this because I'm doing it two days out of when I normally do the podcast. So as you listen to this, you're hearing something totally different. Not only the content, but the, the sound of this fucking thing, which I will never do again. But I wanted to have something for you to listen to and maybe give you a better sense of where I came from, uh, at least in the music business. I've been hit hard about that. I've done a few things here and there. Now, people ask me, tell me some music stories. Well, there you have some music stories of the time in the music business. It was fun. It was exciting. But I'm glad that shit's over. That is one of the more fucked up business, cutthroat businesses, lying business that I've ever fucking seen. Now, fortunately, the music business is vastly different. I still have my friends, my guy in Los Angeles, Monty Moyer here in Minneapolis. I still know a lot of these people, and all of them have kind of settled down because we're all old now. We really wouldn't fit into the music business at this point. So there you have it. That's the Rational Boomer a little different. And uh, you may get another one here coming up here pretty quickly that will be different too, only because I need to fill one more spot. But never fear. If you don't like these podcasts, if you don't like the way this went, well, (laughs) in a couple of podcasts, we'll be back to normal talking about the same old crazy shit that's going on in this fucking country, and we'll get back on track. So thanks for hanging with me. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, send them to me at rationalboomer at gmail.com or go to anchor.fm, leave a voicemail where Rational Boomer is posted there. So you have a great day. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.